Amen. Please open your Bibles to Galatians 5, verses 16 to 25. We'll be in this passage pretty closely, so please keep your Bibles open with you, and then we will expound it accordingly. Let me read this passage for us and then open us up in prayer. Galatians 5, verses 16 to 25. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that though we have rejected you, Though we have turned aside and become wayward, Lord, you looked upon us in our misery, and you came down, you condescended, you took on flesh, and you died the death that we should have died, and you lived the life that we should have lived, such that you're resurrected and vindicated in righteousness, and now you sit at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Father, and from there, you've poured out the Holy Spirit so that we might bear fruit, so that we can become more like Jesus, and so that we can extend the same gospel, the same forgiveness that you have given to us and proclaim it to others. Father, help us see this gospel, help us hear this gospel, help us embrace this gospel so that again we could bear fruit. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, I am very grateful to be here. I'm very thankful to finally come here and see you in person. I've heard a lot about you from our dear Isaac Whitney, and I bear good news from Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. that he is indeed doing a fine job. He's not just going up there and playing around. He's actually studying. He's in theological Dutch right now. He's in an advanced study cohort with me, going through Dutch together so that we can read primary sources in Neo-Calvinism, Herman Bobbing. You'll hear more about that tonight. And he's a very studious person. He's a very serious person. And he's very faithful and he's very committed to you. And um, again, I'm very thankful to see that he's got a wonderful church home right here in Christ Church, Westchester. So we're going to turn now to this passage in Galatians 5, 16 to 26, not 25, as we've read before. And this is probably a very familiar passage to you, and this is the risk of preaching from this passage, because it's so familiar that perhaps if you've grown up in the church, you probably know about verse 22, about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? And you've heard from verse 22, you've maybe even memorized it. You think about the fruit of the Spirit, and it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. You might even have a song that you've memorized growing up. I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, And so it's become very familiar to us, but as you can see, this passage is nested within this account of an opposition between the flesh on the one hand and the spirit on the other. And the fruit of the spirit 
is meant to be really good news for us because it's emphasizing here what Paul is saying, that Christians are made Christians, not as good people are becoming better people, but rather Christians are made Christians, and this is a radical transformation. This is not just a moderate or small advancement from becoming good and then becoming better, but this is about someone who's deeply in sin, someone who doesn't even want God, someone who's in the flesh, as this text says, who's now deeply transformed by the Holy Spirit so that they can actually bear fruit and love God and actually bear all of these spiritual qualities that we're going to see. So this is an account of radical, deep transformation. The Spirit, as we're going to see, comes from the outside in, transforms us from the inside out, so that we can bear this fruit. And a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Only a good tree can. And so this is, again, an account of radical transformation. So there are three points I want to cover from this passage today as we go through the passage together. First, why do we need the Holy Spirit? Second, how does the Spirit work? And third, finally, to whom the Spirit points? Okay, so first, why do we need the Spirit? Second, how does the Spirit work? And third, to whom the Spirit points. So first, then, why do we need the Holy Spirit? The short answer, as you've seen in verses 16, 17, right, is that we are in the flesh. So let's read that again together. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. We need the Holy Spirit because we are in the flesh, right? In other words, this is the teaching of the Apostle Paul specifically that we are corrupted ever since the fall of Adam and Eve. We are in Adam, and because he fell, so we too are fallen. And so we sin because we're born sinners and corrupted rather than the other way around. It's not that we've sinned and then we become sinners, but rather we are sinners first, and then because we're sinners, we end up having this inclination, this propensity to sin. So when you think about the Apostle Paul here and the way in which he uses the word flesh, don't think about flesh in other contexts of the Bible, right? We've got to be really careful here. Flesh in other contexts, like let's say in the Gospel of John, doesn't refer primarily to the corrupted sinful nature, which is what Paul is saying here. In fact, other translations would translate the sense of flesh here in Paul as just sinful nature. Rather, when you actually see the Apostle John talk about the flesh, he's talking about the body, the human nature. So... Our flesh as created good and given to us by God embodiment is a good thing. And so in John 1.14, it says that the word of God became flesh. And that flesh is, again, created. It's good. And God loves us in our embodiment. And the word of God did not consider it below him to take on flesh, but it was proper to him because we're made in the image of God. So when Paul is talking about flesh here, he's speaking about flesh in terms of our sinfulness, the disposition of our fallen heart after the fall, not just our flesh in terms of our createdness. Okay. So, Paul is saying here that because we're born in the flesh, we have this innate intrinsic propensity towards sin. We find it easier to sin, and we find it harder to obey holiness. And even though in verse 17, we can acknowledge that we're supposed to desire the things that are good for us, even though we want to even do those things, we find ourselves not doing those things. It's almost as if gravity is dragging upon us to do those things which are bad for us, to do those things which are not good for us. And in fact, we're enticed to do it. We take delight in doing it. We can acknowledge the good, but we don't want to do that. We'd rather do all these other evil things instead. 
St. Augustine famously in his spiritual autobiography, The Confessions, right, gave this very famous story that illustrates the point here where he said that when he was a teenager, he would always walk by this pear tree and he would say in this autobiography that I don't even like pears, I wasn't even hungry, but every time I walked by this pear tree, I would take a pear. Why? Because there was a sign that told me I couldn't have it. I wasn't even hungry. Again, I don't even like pears, but it, it just gave me this sense of enticement, this sense of gratification to know that I'm doing something I'm not supposed to, right? And I see this not just again in teenagers, and Augustine was talking about himself as a teenager back then, but even in my young daughter, who's 20 months old, Kira, and she's cute and she's fantastic, but she's a rascal, right? And my wife um, keeps open this app, which talks about all of her developments and all her phases, and this is apparently the time at which she is testing boundaries. She's supposed to get the sense of what's right and wrong, and she needs structures in her life, right? I think that's a euphemism, because she's not testing boundaries, she's dancing on them, right? She would extend her hand to a pair of scissors, and she'd get bored with the toys that she's supposed to play with, and she would extend her hand to the scissors that she's not supposed to play with. She would smile at me as she's inching toward it. And the more I say no, the more she's giggling and smiling and laughing, and she's just enticed until I say no, Kira, in a really stern way. And then she would, at the last minute, just turn away. Well, what's up with that? I never taught her that, right? Um, I never had to teach her that, but again, there's this propensity in us. So in other words, what Paul is talking about here is not some abstract thing that you've never heard about. You know it within yourselves. That same tendency towards sinfulness, towards waywardness was in us, in our youth, even as little toddlers to teenagers, and it's in us right now, and it's causing us to go to these idols, these sins, these evil things that we know we're not supposed to do, and again, we're running headlong toward them. And so you see this account of the works of the flesh in verse 19. The works of the flesh, it says here, are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. And so you're thinking to yourself, okay, that's what I associate with the flesh. When I think about the flesh and the sinful nature, those things are obviously physical, quote-unquote fleshly, sensual, whatever, right? But notice it's not just referring to things which are obviously physical or fleshly. Notice it also talks about idolatry, sorcery, we'll talk about that, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, right? So notice, alongside drunkenness, sexual immorality, there's also fits of anger. There's also rivalries. There's also impurities. There's also idolatry, right? Envy. These are things that are not easily detectable. In fact, on the outward, they might actually look like good things. It looks like, you know, you're just competitive or you're just really competent. You really want to pursue these things. So rivalries end up sort of naturally happening, right? So these are not just about physical realities and the physical things that we are tending to do and they're obvious. These are about states of the heart, psychological states, things that we ponder in our minds, things that we fondle in our hearts, right? And so how do we make sense of this? Why, how, why does the flesh lead us not just to gross, immediately visible things, but also these other psychological states of the heart as parts of the flesh? Well, I think the way we can understand this, and, and Tim Keller and his work has really helped me see this, is the parallel between verse 16 and verse 18. Notice what you see there. 
Notice in verse 16, it says, walk by the Spirit. And then the first part of verse 18, it says, if you're led by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, are paralleling one another. So that when you're walking by the Spirit, you're being led by Him. And then notice, the desires of the flesh are being suppressed if you walk by the Spirit. And if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So somehow, there's this parallel between not gratifying the desires of the flesh and being not under the law. Or to say it positively, there's something about gratifying the desires of the flesh and being under the law. Now, what do we mean by being under the law? Okay. And again, we've got to be careful here again, because Paul is not saying you shouldn't obey the law. Right? Paul is not talking about the content of the law, the Ten Commandments. Paul would always emphasize in other passages like Romans 7 that the law is good, that the law is in fact spiritual, it comes from the Spirit. Nor, therefore, is Paul talking about the obedience of the law. Of course we're supposed to obey the law. The law tells us as Christians what we're supposed to be doing to please God, right? So it's not talking about the content, nor is it talking about obedience to the law. So what does it mean to say that we are under the law? Again, under the law for Paul is a technical term. Under the law means that we are condemned under the law. We are judged by the law because we have fallen short under the law. And so the weight of the law becomes this crushing weight above us that destroys us. And in fact, because we're under the law, we feel that pressure. There's a kind of internal pressure that tells us that we are not okay, that we're guilty, that there are holes within ourselves that we need to be filled up. And ever since Adam and Eve fell, right, this is again imitating Adam and Eve, they covered up their nakedness with fig leaves because they knew that they were naked and ashamed. And ever since then, humanity have always felt naked and ashamed. And instead of running to God to cover up our nakedness, we would rather turn to other things to cover ourselves up, to make ourselves feel okay again, to make ourselves feel validated, to make ourselves feel like I'm somebody or I'm okay, that, I, that I'm right again, that I'm, I'm, I'm really a person of interest, I'm really a good person or whatever else, right? And so this helps me understand the gratification of the flesh, okay? Stick with me. Because we feel condemned, because we feel that there's something wrong with us, we're always going to run to created things and not God to cover ourselves up, to make ourselves feel like we're okay. And so perhaps, let's take a look at these works of the flesh, right? Perhaps that might mean, I don't feel okay, and if only I could have as many sexual partners as possible, I'm going to feel like somebody. I'm going to feel okay. If only I could have as much fame in the world so people are paying attention to me, then I'll feel like I'm somebody. This weight, this pressure, this anxiety, this insecurity will finally go away. Or maybe, again, it's not that obvious. Maybe it's something more subtle. And you say to yourself, if only I had a good career, that's going to make me feel okay. That's going to justify me. That's going to relieve this weight over me. And so... When you say that to yourself and then you see somebody else get ahead of you, when you see somebody else get acknowledged by your peers and your bosses more so than you, you can't celebrate with them. No, you turn that into a rivalry. You turn that into a source of strife. You turn that into enmity. In fact, you also suddenly become envious because you say, if only I had the career that he has, then I could feel okay again. If only I had, by the way, the family that he or she has, then I could feel okay right now. Not, not just career, but all these traditionally good things, like having a family, could become this thing that makes you feel okay with yourself. And so 
when your children are not obeying you the way that you would expect them to, right? You don't just discipline them, you throw a fit of rage, especially because this was public. Because you found your source of justification in your family, right? Or again, maybe you found a sense of justification, a sense of vindication, a sense of being right to cover up your nakedness in your political or theological opinions. And then suddenly, you're not able to have a civil discourse or disagreement with somebody else who disagrees with you because it's not just about that political opinion or that theological opinion out there. No, it's about you. Your identity is caught up in it. And so if you disagree with someone and somebody disagrees with you, this is an attack on your own very sense of self. And that's the desire of the flesh here. That's what Paul is talking about. There's something about us that always runs to these creaturely realities that ultimately can't cover us up, that are ultimately fragile, that can't cover our shame and nakedness. And we turn to them and we say, please cover me. And from this, all of these works of the flesh arises, envy, dissension, enmity. Now what about sorcery? Okay, what's up with that? So we're 21st century uh, Americans in this room, right? And I think we are kind of getting away from this, but, but where I'm coming from, from Jakarta, Indonesia, this is actually very apparent to me as I was a pastor there. What's sorcery all about? Sorcery, ultimately, is about power and control. When I was a pastor there, there were a lot of people wanting to get married, and in Jakarta, it was actually still very common for you to go to a seer or a paranormal person. We, the literal translation is a paranormal smart person. I don't know why they, they say that about these people. And they would come to me, these, these couples in premarital counseling, they would say, can I get one of these paranormal seers, these paranormal smart persons, to just show up in our wedding, and they will actually perform, and I've seen this happen, an incantation in the background, so that some spiritual entity would come and protect the weather, so that there would be no rain, so that there would be a picture-perfect wedding. And in Jakarta, Indonesia, weddings were a big, big deal. You know, you're, you're not, if you had a wedding of like 80 people, they would say that you know, something bad happened. We had a wedding of just 100 people, and they thought there was a pandemic wedding, but it was before the pandemic. Um, and they, they would normally have weddings for like 2,000, 1,000 people, right? Massive. And in, in Jakarta, it's either rainy season or not rainy season. So these seers were making a lot of money because they get to summon this entity that protects the whole thing so that these thousands of people can mingle and party and have good food and have wonderful, beautiful pictures. And the thing is, in Jakarta, weddings were a source of validation and reputation management. Because it's not just about the couple, it's about the family. It's about making yourself look good. This is a very corporate sort of identity. So why do they turn to these sorcerers, these magicians? Well, again, it's a sense of control. If only I could have the wedding that everybody in the city talks about then I could be somebody, right? And so let me just get these paranormal seers and, so, and, and things like that. That's really going to finally gratify me. And so we turn to these things because we want to feel like we're somebody. And instead of running to God, we turn to these works of the flesh. And notice verse 21. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And no wonder, right? No wonder. We don't turn to God, we turn to these things that don't satisfy. And so there's a natural consequence. We will not inherit the kingdom of God from whom real vindication comes. And some of you here might not be Christian and you're thinking to yourself already, this is why I'm not a Christian. 
There's this talk of not inheriting the kingdom of God. You're, you're so judgmental, right? This is so bigoted. This is so intolerant. Why can't we just embrace everybody? Why can't we just accept everybody? Christianity, you're always drawing lines. You're always being judgmental, right? And this is the proof in verse 21. Well, let me just challenge you. That's your thought process right now, right? Um, everybody's going to draw a line. It's not whether you're drawing a line, but from what resources, what principles would you draw those lines in? So that even when you know, a few months ago, somebody told me, a close friend of ours, so you're always drawing lines, and, I told, and he said to me, why can't we just accept everyone? And I, I challenged this person back. You just told me that you don't accept everybody. In fact, you don't accept Christians. You don't accept Christians because we're bigoted, we're intolerant, we're drawing these lines. He said, so you're drawing a line. And in fact, you're drawing a line between the good and the bad. The good are those who are tolerant. The bad are those who are intolerant, right? And by the way, you're also not accepting Muslims. You're not accepting Orthodox Jews. You're not accepting Confucianists. So you're drawing a line, and in fact, you're drawing a very parochial line. You're drawing a line informed by westernized, individualistic, post-enlightenment, 21st century society against the global world. But in the Christian faith, we're drawing a line, and we're drawing a line from a more global Catholic sort of faith from generation to generation being passed down. And so we draw a line that is actually God's line. We would argue it's from divine revelation. So you're the parochial line drawer. We have a more Catholic, universal line that we see. And by the way, the good news here is, right, this line is not between those who are righteous versus unrighteous. The line, this is the good news, is between everyone we're all in the flesh. Everyone has fallen short, as we read in Romans chapter 3, right? Everyone is in the flesh, and everyone is against God. So the line is not between the good and the bad, but between everyone who's bad against God. And every time I hear these objections, they always say to me, well, great, you know, what about those good atheists and those good Muslims and those good Buddhists, right? Surely God's going to accept them. My response to them is twofold. First, you're already smuggling in a doctrine. You're smuggling in a doctrine called salvation by good works, so that good people automatically go to heaven, right? And secondly, how come nobody's ever asked me, well, what about the bad atheist? What about the bad Muslim? What about the bad Hindu person, right? Is there no good news for them? You're telling me all the good people deserve to go to heaven, right? But then all the bad people are going elsewhere. No, I'm telling you, all of us are bad. And there's good news for you. If you feel the sense of dread of being under the law, you too can receive the salvation by grace alone and by faith alone. That's the good news. The line is not between the good and the bad, but between everyone in the flesh versus God. So that's why we need the Holy Spirit, right? It brings me to my second point. How does the Spirit work, therefore? And here we get to that famous passage in verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Right? Before I get to these qualities of the fruit of the Spirit, let me just talk about the Spirit's work in itself first. And notice, again here, this is the fruit of the Spirit, which means it comes from the outside in. And because this is fruit, it also transforms you from the inside out because a fruit stems from the work of the Spirit from the heart, from the inside. So this is a work of the Spirit from the outside in and the inside out. I call this the outside in, inside out dynamic, right? Not very creative, but it, it does the job. So it comes from the outside in because it's a work of the Spirit. The flesh cannot do this. This is not an incremental change, again, of one willing a good thing to another compounded towards a greater transformation, right? 
This is a work of the Spirit that comes from the outside in and transforms you so radically that this is called being born again, being new creatures in Christ. So that Christianity is not about making you better, but making you into a new person. And the work of the Spirit, therefore, comes, and John 3, which I think complements Paul here, tells us that this work of the Spirit is not something, therefore, that you can control. The Spirit blows wherever it wishes. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going, but though you see its effects and its fruit, you can't control it, right? And the work of the Spirit, therefore, in transforming you, gives you eyes to see the truth, gives you ears to hear, and then suddenly, all of these attributes become something that you long for. Suddenly, you're listening to sermons, and you're going to Bible study, and this is no longer boring to you. This is something that is enlightening to you. This is something that encourages you. This is something that fuels you, even. Now, what accounts for that change, right? I became a Christian um, in a Pentecostal church service when I was 17. I was a senior in high school, and I went to an international Christian school back in Jakarta, Indonesia, and um, I remember right after I became a Christian, I went through this cage stage, right, this zeal, and I was really frustrated in my international Christian school. I was like, I've been here seven years. How come I've never heard the gospel before? I had to go to a Pentecostal church to hear it, you know? How come I've never heard the gospel before? And I was like berating my teachers, and I was talking to my peers who called themselves Christians, and they, with patience and love, told me, Gray, like, really listen. We have been telling you the gospel. We've been telling you the gospel for years. We've been praying for you for years. And so I kept quiet, and I started listening. Every chapel service, every morning devotion, every encounter with a teacher, right, Lo and behold, there it was. There was the gospel. It was loud and, loud and clear. Jesus Christ saved me by grace alone. It's not because of my good works, but Jesus Christ came and he became good for me, right? And so suddenly I was like, they have been telling me, but how come I've been here for seven years and I never understood this? How come I had ears to see and, 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 and sorry, ears to hear and eyes to see and I never really understood any of this? I didn't really see and I didn't really hear, even though I was technically listening and even though I was a student, Right? What happened, right? Have you ever thought about that yourselves, phenomenologically? Why is it that you are coming to this church and Pastor Raymond is preaching, you're crying, you're weeping, right? You're taking notes, and it's so powerful, it was a great sermon. You brought along your friend, and they're there, and then you turn there, and then they're playing Candy Crush. <laughs> no interest, right? No interest at all whatsoever. Like, what accounts for that difference? Why did that happen to you? Why are you interested? Why are you here right now? And if you don't understand the fruit of the Spirit here, the work of the Holy Spirit from the outside in and the inside out, right? You're going to start to think to yourself, well, it's because I'm listening better. It's because I'm more attentive. It's because I, I know my sin better. It's because I read the Bible more. Whatever it is, notice you're now gratifying the work of the flesh. You're covering yourself up. I'm here, and I'm covered up no longer under the law because I listen. Because ultimately, it's up to you then. And then once that happens, friends, if you don't understand this, right, you're going to become really frustrated at the person next door, at the person who's playing Candy Crush. Because you're going to think to yourself, if only they were like me, they would get it. That's the work of the flesh. That's dissension. That's rivalry. That's not good, is it? And, and so 
if you, if you don't get this, you're always going to think that it's about you and not ultimately about God who transforms hearts. And I was like that too, right? One of the transformative books that really helped me early in my Christian walk was a book by R.C. Sproul called Holiness of God. Fantastic book, and it kept me up at night, and I was reading it, and I was crying, right? And um, I remember I was so frustrated with my friends because I had this mindset, and I didn't understand this work of the Spirit, where it's really all about me, and so if only they heard the same sermon that I did, or if only they're reading the same books that I'm reading, they would be transformed the same way. And so I remember back in Jakarta, I would photocopy books, The Holiness of God. This is probably not kosher, but I was far away. So um, I was just photocopying, right? And I was giving it to people. I was like, here, read this, read that, right? And people were just not getting it. They were like, I was like, this is a really bad photocopy. It's not even like properly done, right? They said, but put it aside. Some of them read it. They found it boring. Other people didn't even read it at all, right? And I'll be so frustrated at them. And again, it made me prideful. It made me prideful. And here's the thing, friends, and here's the second thing under the second point. So, so how does the spirit work inside out, outside in, right? Um, the second thing about the work of the spirit here is that the, the spirit causes you to bear fruit. And notice it's singular. It's the fruit of the spirit. So that all of these aspects here are qualities that the spirit gives you all at once, all together. And so, you know what I was doing, friends? I was getting bitter, I was getting faithful, but I was not gentle to my peers who were not reading Holiness of God. I was not kind to people who came to my church and heard the sermon that changed me, and then they weren't changed. No, I was good and faithful without kindness and without gentleness, right? Have you considered as well, maybe, again, our flesh could produce semblances of one of these things without the others, right? Have you considered as well somebody who had a lot of peace but no love? Because that peace was contingent and dependent upon particular circumstances where they were not enmeshed in deep, committed relationships because they're scared of them, because it makes them vulnerable, because suffering comes through these love commitments, right? Or maybe you've heard about somebody who is having a lot of self-control, but no joy. Like going through a diet or a training regimen, and they can't wait for the holidays, and they can't wait till it's Friday night, right? Because they're exercising all the self-control, but it's almost like they're, they're pent up. They're angry about it. But I'm exercising self-control, right? Or somebody who's kind, but not good. So you're kind to everyone, you are indiscriminately kind, and so when push comes to shove and there's evil that comes in your way, you're not able to confront it. You're not able to tell, you're not able to discern, and so if you're kind without good, you're lacking courage. And you can't actually deal proportionately with the evil that is in front of you. And how do you therefore become kind and good at the same time? And how do you become, again, good with gentleness? How do you, and this is the big question, right? How do you become good without at the same time nurturing pride? Without at the same time looking down your nose on other people, saying, if only they were more like me, they could become better like I am, right? That's the difficult question. And this is why, friends, this is a work of the Spirit where God gives you a supernatural work so that you can produce this fruit and all of these qualities come together. This brings me to my third and final point. How does that happen? 
It happens, friends, because the Spirit points you to the source of your goodness, points you to the source of being no longer under the law, points you to one who indeed lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you should have died. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires, right? In other words, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you're no longer under the law. Why? Because now, when God looks to you, he doesn't even see your sinfulness anymore, but rather he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ because when he died on that cross, it wasn't because of his sin. It wasn't because he was in the flesh, but because you were in the flesh. And so when he was crucified, whose condemnation was brought upon him? It was ours. We were crucified in him, and so now that we're crucified in him, that weight, that sense of dread, that sense of insecurity can be taken care of, can be wiped away. Why? Now we're no longer naked and then trying to cover ourselves. No, we're covered now with fig leaves. Now with our little achievements that doesn't really do the job. No, it's, we're covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. So the Spirit points you to Jesus. And so now if you're covered up in him and you're no longer under the law, you don't need to prove yourself anymore. So you don't need to turn around and make all these little achievements sources of enmity and strife and envy, right? And so that now you're covered up in Jesus and you have this utter security. And so if you're fully accepted in him, why should you provoke one another? Why should you want to defend yourself? Why should you seek to vindicate yourself? You don't need to anymore because Jesus Christ is the life that you have now. You're fully approved. You don't need to prove yourself anymore, friends. And guess what? How did Jesus do that? When you're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, you can't help it but investigate your own life and you realize you, even as a Christian, don't live this out perfectly. You stifle the fruit. You don't produce the fruit very well. And imagine if before you had the Spirit, right? You had this little semblance, but you never had the whole thing. And friends, Jesus was able to perfectly live the life because he was the one who lived the fruit of the Spirit. He was the one who lived the Spirit-filled life. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 44 and 45, right? Jesus is called the one who had the life-giving Spirit. And so he was fully good and he was gentle at the same time. Consider what he said to the woman caught in adultery and the Samaritan woman at the well, right? Go and sin no more. He was good, but I do not condemn you. He was kind because he knew he was going to die for their sins. And he was therefore able to stay on the cross. Why? Because he had utter peace and the security of the Father. He knew that he was approved by the Father and so was able to remain. He didn't have to call down the angels to vindicate himself. No, he rested in the Father and so he had absolute self-control. He stayed despite all those temptations. And guess what? He remained there for the joy set before him so that you and I could become his church and his bride. So you and I could have the same spirit that filled him. So that you and I can now look upon Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness that he offers right there. And therefore, we can walk by the Spirit because he was the first one, our elder brother, who walked by the Spirit beforehand as a life-giving Spirit. Let me close with one last observation. Notice here, verse 25, that we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, which is coming back to verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. 
Don't let the familiarity of this passage dull you to what's being communicated here, right? You are able now to walk with God. This forgiveness that you have in Christ Jesus isn't just telling you you're now guilt-free, do whatever you want. No, this is enabling you access to the true and living God. And guess who walked by the Spirit? It was Adam in the garden who walked with God. And guess who's been running away from the Spirit all along after we sinned in Adam, right? All of us. And Jesus, who's the second Adam, walked in the Spirit. And God is promising us in the book of Revelation that in the last day, we too would walk by the Spirit climactically and fully. Salvation, in other words, restores us to our perfect natural states in Adam and foreshadowing the future. We don't do it perfectly now, but we can have a foretaste of it right now. That life of the future, that perfect obedience, that true holiness that is to come, you can do it today. As Calvinists, we, we know at least, and I know Raymond has been teaching you all this, we know the doctrine of totally de- total depravity, right? Christian, if you are in this room and you've received the Spirit of Christ, you are no longer totally depraved. Hear that good news. You can obey God. Don't succumb to the satanic temptation that says you are always forever stuck in the flesh. No, you have the Spirit. You have the fruit of the Spirit. You can bear the Spirit. So, don't provoke one another. Keep in step with the Spirit. Don't gratify the flesh. In Christ Jesus, you do have this power. Let's pray.